back to the show. This is your host, Brett Hawes, and we're back with another episode today. And uh, my guest today is David Stefan, who longtime listeners and regular listeners of the show, you will know exactly who that is. Uh, David is actually the, uh, the first person to appear twice on the show. And there have been a lot of uh, recent developments, which I'll hop into in just a second. And, and that sort of prompted me uh, in a sense of urgency in some ways to get David back on the show. So just a quick recap here uh, of David's case. And I want you to check out the show notes and, and link back. I've linked back to the first episode because it really unpacks a lot of what we're talking about in this show. But long story short, uh, David's son, um, Ezekiel, uh, died um, suddenly uh, a few years back now. And uh, the official line that came out, uh, which is still touted today in the me- in the media, is that he died from negligence, right? Um, failing to provide the necessities for life. And of course, because David and his family live an alternative lifestyle where they're into natural medicine, he, um, his his uh his family owns a company called True Hope, uh, which provide you know support for people, uh, you know, just from mental, emotional health. Um, but because they didn't go the medical route, they were essentially ostracized, and not just ostracized; they were actually criminally charged. And and that case is now circled back, uh, where they are back in court, and David is actually now defending himself. But there was also another case recently of a little boy named John Wyatt Clark. A uh, very, very similar story in many senses where he also uh, died tragically. And again, the parents lived alternative lifestyles, a uh, very, very similar story in many respects. But really why I want you to listen to this podcast and pay very, very close attention is what we are dealing with here is the medicalization of medicine, of care. And dare I say the medicalization of Canada. And this is not something that's exclusive to Canada. This is happening elsewhere in the world. But essentially, the thrust of what we're talking about today is if you do not choose to go the medical route, right? So if you if you choose to not vaccinate your child, if you choose to not give your child medication, if you choose to not hospitalize them and your child dies, you will be charged criminally. Now, this sets an extremely dangerous precedent for us because what it does is it severely restricts our rights and freedoms. And I'm not talking about people who are blatantly neglectful of their children. You know, if you're locking you up in a basement with no food and beating you, like that's child abuse. And yes, you should be locked up. Absolutely. But these are loving parents who are you know, eating clean, organic food, who are in many cases vegan, who are super conscious of their environment, of of what they're putting into their body, of using natural medicine. So these are far from neglectful and abusive parents that we're talking about. And the danger of that is we are working our way very, very quickly into a scenario where we will be forced to medicate our children and we will be forced to not be able to choose alternative treatments and you know for those listening to the show obviously you know we're called holistic health masterclass so we're we're in a little bit of an echo chamber here but i've always said there's a time and place for everything you you know if, if you have a crazy infection and you're about to you know lose a leg take the antibiotics it's fine if you get hit by a bus go to the hospital like absolutely we need er but the problem that we face nowadays is that as natural medicine has become more popular 
And as more questions and doubts have been raised about the uh, pharmaceutical medical complex, uh, the medical establishment, uh, that, that is being reverberated up into government levels, into police levels. And I think what you're going to hear on the show is the deep level of corruption that's happening uh, across the board. So I'm going to leave it at that because I find this is a, you know, I get heated when I talk about this. I get a little pissed off as well. But you guys need to hear this stuff because if you think it's not happening, I really want you to think again. All right. This is not some pie in the sky conspiracy theory or any of this nonsense. This is actually happening in the courts here in Canada. And because our law works on precedent, uh, this could very well be coming to a town near you. So uh, please listen to the show uh, to the end. And I really want you to uh, pay careful attention. And I want you to share this with your friends and family, because this is a very, very real issue that's happening right now. Uh, so that's it from my side. Uh, enjoy the show. And as always, uh, please help us spread the word by sharing, liking, subscribing, reviewing, anything else you can do to get the word out there. Hey, David. Uh, thanks for coming back on the show today. Hey, thank you so much for having me back, Rap. Appreciate yeah. it. So um, for those listeners out there, uh, you will notice that David is the first person to actually appear twice on the show. So um, uh, whatever that means to you, David, feather in your cap. Or, uh, <laughs> but, um, but in all seriousness, uh, David, I mean, you know, I wanted to get you back on the show because there have been some recent developments, both in your case, um, as well as a new case that has recently been wrapped up. And so, you know, us chatting on Facebook, I said, hey, let's get you on the podcast ASAP and let's get this out there because um, some pressing things are happening. But, uh, you know, for those of you who are familiar with the podcast, um, you would probably have heard David's first episode. And I will be putting a link in the show notes below to that episode. So I would encourage you to listen to it so that you get David's story in its entirety. But for those of you who have not heard that story before, David, perhaps we'll start with your story because there's also been some recent developments there. So maybe give us the sort of cliff notes on, on what happened, um, you know, what that ver original verdict was and where things are at with your case right now. Perfect. Okay. Yeah, we'll do. Um... So in, in 2012, um, in March of, of 2012, our, our son uh, uh, came ill. And um, actually, it was the very end of February 2012. And it, it appeared to be, you know, typical croup. He gets, uh, uh, gets better after about five days, goes back to parent preschool that uh, my wife was taking um, my four-year-old uh, to at the time. And, um, <clears throat> and he goes back to church and he starts to develop what appeared to be like early onset symptoms of the flu, uh, nothing severe. There's no fever associated with it, no vomiting, nothing like that. Um, but he just appeared to kind of have like, you know, mild flu symptoms and they waxed and waned for a few days. And um, on, on Tuesday, March 13th, he actually went symptom free um, in the uh, late morning, early afternoon. And we thought, you know, the next day he'll be up and running again playing like his, his normal self and so my wife at that at that point uh, decided to go to a church activity in the evening after we put him down for a nap um because well he just wasn't experiencing any, any symptoms she didn't think she needed to manage anything and at that point he woke up from his nap about two hours into it an hour and a half two hours and he developed uh some kind of interesting breathing pattern that was curious um in nature it didn't it didn't seem alarming because he was you know attentive he was um 
you know, I gave him liquids when he woke up, that type of thing. So there was nothing that seemed of concern, especially compared to the croup that he had two weeks previous. But um, my wife phoned just to see, you know, had, had he woke up from his nap? How's he doing? And I said, well, he woke up, you know, he's fine, but he, he's got this interesting breathing pattern. And so she decided to come home early from the, um, the, uh, the activity, gets home. And before we had a chance to analyze it, he goes into sudden, um, I'd call it respiratory arrest, or he just stopped breathing. And so we phoned 911, and um, he started breathing again while I was on the phone with 911 after my wife had pat him on the back, gave him a rescue breath, he coughed up mucus and fluid, and we thought, okay, well, we just phoned 911 for no reason. So anyways, to really fast forward things here, because it's quite a long story, is um, we decided to take him to the hospital, and on our drive to the hospital, we, um, he stopped breathing again, we phoned 911, and he ended up in an ambulance that was improperly equipped for the previous uh, year. And so when he got into that ambulance, they didn't have the pediatric equipment necessary to get him an airway. So he went over eight minutes without any oxygen whatsoever and subsequently arrived at the hospital uh, in a case of uh, major brain damage or complete brain death. And so um, he ends up passing five days later. We um, unfortunately had to pull him off life support and a police investigation uh, takes place. And we're interrogated till, uh, you know, four in the morning at the um, Alberta Children's Hospital by the police um, after previous meetings with, um, with Child Protective Services. And uh, nearly a year later, we are charged with failing to provide the necessaries of life. And so, which is up to five years in jail. And so I'd read the autopsy report because I wanted closure because we never knew why he had died. None of the doctors could give us anything that was even close to a clear answer as to what had taken place. We weren't uh, really aware of what had taken place in the ambulance at that time, um, other than we heard um, uh, through the, uh, you know, the gossip chain that there was an issue in the ambulance in regard to intubation, which I didn't even know what that terminology was at that time. And so uh, nearly a year later, we get charged, and I'm reading the autopsy report, and it's loaded with vaccine information in there about... Uh, you know, how they use non-clinical uh, non research methodologies to determine that he had homophilus influenza bacterial meningitis, as well as uh, a right pleural empyema, which is a well-developed uh, infectious um, uh, pussy solidification on the outer wall of the lung in the pleural cavity, and that, that those are the two causations of death, and that vaccination um, with the Hib vaccine would have, you know, prevented that. And so... Right. I thought, oh my goodness, like I'm, I'm not, uh, you know, I've never read another autopsy report, but I do understand what's relevant and what's not relevant. And the only relevance I could see in this is if they were going to um, do a vaccine uh, court case with us. And so we got a lawyer and I brought this up with the lawyer. I said, hey, I think they're going to do a vaccine trial with us. And he says, no, well, they can't. He says, there's no precedent in, in Canada to do that. There's no case law on that. So they, they couldn't do that. And so I'm like, oh, okay. Oh, good, good. Didn't want to go there. Well, fast forward to 2014, uh, just over two years after his passing, and we're in a preliminary trial, and all this information keeps on coming out about vaccinations and how it would have prevented uh, his passing altogether. And so my lawyer asked the question, he says, you know, I wasn't aware that vaccines were going to be a topic during this trial. And the Crown Prosecution stands up and says, oh, they're actually going to be a major topic during this trial. Huh. And so they take a, you know, <clears throat> a recess and they go and talk it over. And our lawyer comes back to us and says, what they're looking to do is set a precedent with your court case 
that will hold parents criminally liable if they don't vaccinate and something happens to their child that's vaccine preventable. Right. And so, so, so what, what well, I want to do is just, is just stop there for a minute um, and circle back to a couple of things because, and I know I've covered this, you know, we covered this in our, in our last podcast together, but you know, the, the reasons that they gave, you know, vaccines aside for now, the, the story was heavily skewed in the media, was heavily smeared in the media. I mean, you and I just spoke about this off air before this podcast where people are still citing this as a case of criminal negligence where, you know, you refuse to do anything that was medical or any type of pharmaceuticals. You know, you basically just decided that you were going to go with horseradish and ginger and that was <laughs> the end of it all, right? And, and, and I want to bring that up because, because in the media, it's been portrayed like, you know, you're just a, a couple of people that are just so far out there who have completely shunned medicine entirely, who refuse to provide any sort of medication despite the severe nature of your your child's health. And this is just not the case, obviously, at all. I mean, there's there's a number of things that we covered in the last podcast, but you know, perhaps you can pull out the sort of salient points where where their case really fell apart and was was just flat wrong. And then yep. let's talk about where things are at now um, with, with this as well. And, and we can talk a little bit more about vaccines too, if you like, because it, Perfect. it is a precedent and it's quite alarming. Yeah, yeah. And they're definitely looking to do that, even in the, the recent case I covered that we'll get to. Um, but yeah, so even going back to uh, dismantling some of the, the media's um, uh, sentiment or, or what they're trying to communicate about us being completely anti-medical, you know, that we would neglect uh, the necessary care for our child if he was in an emergent situation. It's interesting to note because on the Monday um, before his passing, so we're talking March 12th now, um, <clears throat> I come home from a meeting and my wife, uh, it's about noon, and my wife uh, had had a bad night because Ezekiel had uh, began to kind of relapse to where he was uh, a few days previous because he got kind of well over the weekend. And so um, he began to relapse, had a bad night. And so it kept her up. And at this point, she's four and a half months pregnant. And, um, you know, she has, has a, a birth attendant who's coming out who's also a registered nurse. And uh, at that time, had been working in the emergency room for the previous nine years. So a well-experienced emergency room nurse that is our, our birth attendant. And she'd come and do little checkups on, on Colette uh, from time to time, uh, prenatal checkups. And so Colette was due for that anyways. And so Colette said, well, you know, do we need to take him to the doctor? And I said, well, I don't see any need to take him to the doctor. Like, it, it, you know, even though he's kind of relapsed to where he was a few days ago, he still looks like he just has like mild symptoms of the flu. There's nothing that's alarming at all. And, and of course, you have, a, you have a qualified health professional with you at the same time, right? Well, so she comes out. So my wife decided, well, you know, you know I'm due for this, um, this prenatal checkup anyways sometime this week. I'm going to call Terry, who, who's the, the midwife or the birth attendant. I'm going to have her come out and do the birth or the, the prenatal checkup as well as um, take a look at Ezekiel and see if, if she recommends that we take him to a doctor or not. So that was the sole purpose for her coming out was, you know, do we take him to a doctor or do we not? So right. I had another meeting I had to go to about an hour away. So I go to that meeting. So I wasn't there, wasn't present for it. But um, after the meeting, uh, my wife calls me. And says, hey, can you, you pick up some Pedialyte? I said, well, okay, why, why? And she says, well, that's what Terry recommends. So, okay, interesting. Um, I said, we've got some electrolyte uh, drinks at home that, that we can that we work with. So I get home 
And uh, my wife goes over everything and, and, and discusses what Terry had to say. And what Terry had communicated to her was that if you were taken into the emergency room, you'd likely be turned away based on the lack of symptoms. And my wife at this point, you know, I'd left at about noon and she's distraught and emotional. Of course. Um, and I come back and she's in much better spirits. And, uh, and the recommendation was get them Pedialyte. But at that point, um, the topic of meningitis had been broached and not based on any of the symptoms that Ezekiel was displaying because Terry went and, and did a full examination of him, checked his breathing, checked his vitals, um, did everything that, that you do basically as a nurse and didn't see anything of concern. But what she brought up was about two or three weeks previous, there was a case of meningitis in, that came into the emergency room. And so it was on the top of her mind and she said, you know, you might want to look into that. And so the, the two of them actually did. And turns out that if you have flu-like symptoms, those flu-like symptoms, like if you have, if, let's say you are sick with the flu and you went online and you looked at viral meningitis, you'd find that there's actually an overlap of, of a number of the symptoms. So it's, hmm. you know, you can start thinking, well, maybe this is possibly viral meningitis, which viral meningitis um, is, is uh, according to Annie Savageau, the former chief medical examiner of Alberta, is virtually uh, non-lethal. Almost virtually nobody dies from it. Right. Um, bacterial okay. meningitis, so is a whole nother, whole nother beast altogether, but it comes with a whole um, another list of symptoms, a lot more severe in nature. And, and that than, also comes on very quickly as well. I mean, it's 24 to 48 hours and, and it, you got 100 to zero, right? And that's correct. Whereas Ezekiel had been off and on with this light illness uh, of, of what appeared to be the early onset symptoms of the flu now for about five days off and on. Um, just kind of waxing, waning, you know, he's fine watching his cartoons, his backyard again, and that type of thing. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, so right there when my wife and, and, uh, and her, her midwife or her birth tenant took a look at it and said, well, you know, can't be uh, bacterial meningitis because you got 24 hours to 48 hours. And, you know, we're looking at this time period, like it's, that doesn't make sense. And, and the severity isn't there. It, in fact, the severity of even viral meningitis isn't there. The severity of the full-blown symptoms of the flu isn't there. So it's not that we were trying to, to shun you know, modern medicine or anything like that. It's just that there, was, there appeared to be no need. And right. so my wife, just you know, being, being an attentive parent, um, went above and beyond and just you know, had Terry come out and, and check him anyways just to be sure, and so, which I appreciate. But I agreed with Terry's um, uh, idea or ideas there about if you were to take him to the emergency room, you'd likely be turned away because of lack of symptoms. Which I mean, so, is completely counter to what was what was you know um, portrayed in the media, right? <laughs> absolutely. In, in fact, they they continued to stretch it over time. Where the one of the last media articles was after pleas from the nurse to take him into the doctor, as as if she was pleading with us, um, which was not at all the case. In fact, the sole purpose for her coming out was to see whether or not we take him to the doctor. Why would we bring her out to have her say, yeah, you need to bring him to the doctor and then just ignore that? doesn't make any so, sense. So, so, I mean, so, so David, like without unpacking all of this, uh, you know, again, I, I, I refer people back to the, the other um, podcast that we did because we really get into a lot of this stuff. But yep. I guess the, the, the question, you know, because I know that there were also issues, uh, as you said before, you know, the ambulance was not equipped uh, there, you know, there's, there's a lot of inconsistencies with the stories, but I guess the, the big question here is why do you feel the media government, whoever it is, right, is going to such great lengths to skew the story 
to the point of what you just said, you know, I mean, even now, like this is many years on, uh, saying that the you know nurses pleading with you to take the to, to take your son to the hospital. I mean, why are we still in that position? I well, you know, the the media continues to publish articles on me as I'm traveling across Canada, presenting as that's what I've been doing for for quite a few years here as a public presenter, um, talking about how um, uh, there's natural health modalities that have been scientifically proven to be far, far, far more effective than your uh, psychiatric drugs for, for treating depression, anxiety, um, you know, that type of stuff, bipolar, ADD, ADHD. And so I go and I travel across Canada presenting on this. And I, I had been doing this even prior to my being charged. Uh, even that, this is the family process. business, right? I mean, this is true hope. That's correct. Yeah. That's correct. Yep. And so, yeah. so I, I, you know, I've been heavily involved in that for quite some time. So it's interesting now because the media has actually gone well out of their way, um, for lack of better terms, to stalk me and uh, find out where I'm going to be presenting. And then they'll put out articles in that area to create extreme huh. vitriol. And they've been successful to the point where they've actually had it where uh, the, the shows, there's some shows that, uh, different health shows that refuse to, um, to bend under the pressure. And so I they've actually that, been so successful that they've had the venue, um, the actual event center, uh, cancel the, the entire show saying, you wow. can't have this show here if you're, you're going to have David Steffen here. And so we've actually had to move venues, or not we, but um, uh, some, uh, there's one show in particular, the Body, Soul, Spirit, that has been extremely courageous in standing up and saying, you're not dictating to us you know, what we're going to do and, and who our speakers are going to be. We're, we're in two weeks prior to, to their, one of their shows in Calgary this past spring that they had to shift venues last minute because the venue um, was actually uh, creating a major stir and actually looking, it appears, I've got evidence that alludes to them actually um, conspiring with some of the internet trolls to create enough, of, uh, wow. enough phone calls coming into the center so that they could justify having me turf. So I don't know if there's a personal agenda there with somebody that worked at the center or what, but it's, in, it's really peculiar. So, yeah, well, I mean, I, th I think just, you know, if I add my two cents, I mean, from what I see in the media, um, just as a, as a, a thousand foot overview, I don't think that the media, um, especially here in Canada, dare I say elsewhere, they're not very favorable towards natural medicine, period. I mean, nope. you know, every article that ever gets published about natural medicine is always in a bad light. Um, natural health products also in a bad light. And, you know, when they do these big investigative reports and whatever on CBC, you know, it's, it's, never, it's never a good thing. Um, mm -hmm. But interestingly, we never ever hear anything uh, bad about pharmaceuticals or, you know, Western medicine. We never hear anything bad or, or smear campaigns in the media. And so, I mean, I, I think it just raises like a whole nother level of questions, you know, where, yeah, maybe we're dipping our toe into the conspiracy theory water. But from what I'm hearing from you and what I've observed with other people, uh, I don't think it's so much conspiracy. I, I think it's actually happening. Um, which, yeah. You know, exactly what you're experiencing, right? Firsthand. So if I was to give one case, one case example of it. Um, so we've got the Globe and Mail, uh, which is, has been really hot and heavy on, on trying to um, uh, discredit us. And it's interesting because I did a little bit of looking into it further and the health columnist, Andre Picard for the Globe and Mail, who continually writes these nasty articles about us, when you look a little bit deeper into what he does, he isn't just a health columnist for Globe and Mail. He actually is, um, uh, for lack of better terms, a, a traveling salesman 
four. Um, uh, I'm trying to think. I think it's GlaxoSmithKline. Uh, oh. Anyways, one, one of the pharmaceutical companies, um, and he actually goes and promotes these vaccines. Wow. So the, the most recent one that he was uh, promoting was the Shingrix, uh, the, shingle, the new shingles one that, that came yeah. out. And so it's interesting because there's a, there's a clear conflict there where he is traveling across Canada and he's promoting pharmaceuticals. I'm traveling across Canada promoting nutraceuticals and he's a health columnist and has this position where he can disparage his competition. So it's kind of interesting. I would presume that we'll, we'd find that throughout all of the press in Canada. Mm-hmm. I would, I'd be guessing, but I haven't put a whole lot of time into looking into it, but there's, there's definitely something that kind of stinks where it's almost like the pharmaceutical industry has plants in various areas within the media to, to create you know, or to, to promote their agenda. Well, I, I believe it. And, you know, just to double down on that, um, I recently posted something uh, on my Facebook page where Pinterest now, which is a social media platform, Pinterest has now decided to remove uh, any content that is, um, uh, quote unquote, promotes false cures uh, for serious diseases and also any anti-vaccination, anti, any anti-vaxxer content, they have now, this is in their terms and conditions, they will remove it from their platform. Wow. So I, it's, I don't think it's going to be too long. You know, I've had friends who have had their Facebook accounts being, you know, they've gone to Facebook jail, if you want to look at it like that, for yep. posting things that are um, perhaps dissenting opinions and controversial opinions. So, you know, the question then also becomes, well, these are giant mega platforms that we're talking about. You know, are, are we just going to get to this point of complete censorship and uh, one, one party narrative on things like vaccines and natural medicine and so on? And it's an, it, it's an interesting and slightly terrifying thing to think about at the same time. Um, yeah. But just to move us along here, so you, you know, so, I mean, obviously this is a, a tragedy, tragic event. Um, you go through the courts uh, and what happens with your verdict and what's happened now? Uh, where are things at with your case? Perfect. Okay. Yeah. As we go through the courts, we, we discovered that there was a major, major cover up in regard to the passing of our son. And that was identified through the lies of the, the first medical examiner. If he hadn't been so blatantly, um, uh, willing to lie on the stand compared to what he had said two years previous in the preliminary trial, we may not, not have ever found out what exactly was going on because we wouldn't have been looking. We were just trusting, okay, maybe it, maybe it could have been, you know, an, uh, an interesting case of bacterial meningitis that, you know, he, with atypical symptoms and, mm-hmm. um, you know, and all this type of stuff, maybe, maybe it was. But when we discovered that he was full out lying, that's when we brought in another, another medical examiner to look at everything and, and there was no scientific evidence to back up um, anything regarding bacterial meningitis, there was nothing that could be scientifically verified in that regard, as well as it was discovered that the, that the first medical examiner was, uh, appeared to be hiding um, or with, at least withholding x-rays that showed that uh, my son did not have this well-developed lung infection upon arrival to the hospital that, that helped cause his death. And so that's when you know, the whole can of worms got opened so this yeah. came out during court, which is really interesting. Oh, wow. And, or began to come out, and, and we just really only scratched the surface on it. Um, we, we're way further ahead now than we were then. And so um, this comes out before the jury, and the jury has, has, has they got it. Now, in our case, though, the judge um, was siding with the Crown on every single decision, just 
it was like it was the crown's case moving forward. They got their way in everything. And so we saw this, this major bias taking place. And that bias didn't just stop with, you know, the crown getting their way. It came right down to the, the nuts and bolts of the, the jury instruction at the end when the judge um, not only allowed the, um, the crown to, to openly lie to the, the jury in, in their, their final um, submissions to the jury, and we called them out for it, and the judge just, he, he was just trying to ignore it. Like, no, no, we're not going to do anything about it. No, no. Um, rather than addressing it appropriately. And so um, then the judge gives his, his instruction, which we argued back and forth about saying, look, this goes against case law. This is not correct. This is not sound. Um, and so we argued that point for a number of hours and the judge finally just shut down and just started ignoring my lawyer and just wow. moving forward. It basically was the message. So he gives his final, final instructions, which put the jury in a position that they, they had no choice but to find us guilty. And just to give kind of what the sentiment was with observers, there was people sitting in the gallery that um, knew us, that didn't know us, and a lot of them being parents or whatever. A lot of people took particular interest in this case as it was making international headlines. Mm-hmm. And so um, it was interesting because a number of people came up and said, wow, you know, based on what the judge said to the jury, like, you'd have to find me guilty for this time that I did this with my child or this. It had nothing to do with the, the, the fact that our son died. In fact, that was made abundantly clear. It was, you know, that we had endangered his life and that we endangered his life at a time that um, medical treatment could have, not would have made a difference, right? And so he, he opened up this, this major can of worms. And, and so when we get to the appeals court in Alberta, um, about a year, about a year later, um, not quite a year later, they, they rammed it through uh, at record speeds. We get there and there's a panel of three judges and one of the judges says, hey, you know, this jury had no choice but to find this couple guilty based on the errors in law that the first judge made. And mm-hmm. so he took major issue with it. And another one of the judges actually cited uh, some of the case law that, that, um, that validated the first judge's concern. And so <clears throat> here we're thinking, okay, we've got at least two judges on side. And we've got another judge there who has a clear bias against us. And he's not, he's, you know, so it'll probably be a, uh, a decision where there'll be a two to one decision for us. We wait eight months, which is an extremely long time to wait for a decision from the appeals court. And we get the decision and it's actually two against us, one for us. Oh, wow. And so, so that dissenting judge uh, gave um, the fact that he dissented allowed for us to go to the Supreme court where we bring it forward to the Supreme Court, and in May, uh, May 15th of, of this year, um, there is a unanimous decision of the seven Supreme Court justices that identified that there was clear issues with the first trial, and that it went against case law, and so, um, that, and that it put, you know, it basically convoluted everything for the jury that the conviction. Um, because when they did convict us, there were six out of the 12 were crying. Um, they didn't, they clearly visibly didn't want to make that decision, but that, that it put them in a position where, uh, they would have been confused about what to do and, um, and would have basically had to find us guilty. So there's this decision. Um, and so they say, so we're sending it back to trial. So here we are back at square one. And the issue that I'm raising before the courts right now is, we're back at square one with the trial based on all the errors that were made in law in the, uh, the first uh, trial and then in the Alberta Appeals Court. And so we had to take it to the Supreme Court to have it sent back because you guys messed up. So we're back at square one there. But yet 
we're not back at square one with our financial situation. It's cost us approximately $1 million to go through this entire process. We've had wow. to liquidate a lot of our assets, you know, and we're not in a position, we're not in the same position that we once were to be able to, to even begin to kind of finance this. And so this is the issue that I'm bringing before the courts right now saying, my right to a fair trial has been, uh, been compromised because well, I can't even afford a lawyer. So where we are today is we just had to fire our lawyers because we couldn't afford them as well as they weren't willing to, to necessarily go in the same direction as us um, in regard to highlighting a lot of the corruption and the cover-up uh, that's taking place in the Alberta justice system. Um, and when I say do, that, I'm do, talking... Do, do you feel, you know, just just quick question on that. Do you feel that... Um, they're afraid, like it's just something that they just don't want to get involved in for fear of um, retribution and for fear of, you know, whatever on their part, like, you know, damage their career, their reputations. That's, that's exactly um, definitely one of the, the conversations that we've had. Um, there, it, could be, it could be just as simple as, well, they see it as an easy win. And so they're like, let's just focus on the win. Let's not, don't worry about all the other stuff. You can worry about that in, in, uh, in civil suits after. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm saying, no, this all needs to come out now. But that is also, that's one thing that they didn't vocalize, but is quite likely the case as well, is that if they go, um, go against, uh, or if they, if they open up the whole can of worms, yeah. it could be uh, somewhat damaging to their career because it's going to expose a lot of corruption within the whole Alberta justice system. Mm. And I'm not talking necessarily the, the courts so much, but I'm talking about um, the Alberta Solicitor General's office, and the whole crown and the, the wow. RCMP. And it, it just, we brought this forward to a civil lawyer and we presented the evidence that we had. And this is what he said. He said, this, <clears throat> this has the potential to be the biggest conspiracy case in the history of Canada because of the amount of people that have their fingerprints on it, the amount of departments, whether or not they're, they're actually guilty or not, it appears that there is, um, that there's definitely some, uh, some, convoluting going on or, or not convoluting but some conspiring going on between yeah. all of them to ensure that this is just railroaded through wow so. wow and i mean you know that just it, it, it just brings us back to what we were talking about you know a few minutes ago like uh, you know the the media the media the pharmaceutical companies now we're seeing the courts the rcmp like we're seeing all of these pieces come together here and you know, just to sort of like really sum things up here for, for folks listening, because I know this is a lot to take in, you know, you're basically getting found guilty of negligence, right, in, in, with, with your child's case, uh, because, you know, he passed from, uh, from meningitis, which could have been prevented by vaccination, and therefore you are guilty and that is where all of this corruption is stemming from. And we'll talk a little bit more about vaccines in a minute, but... Um, so, so you're you're basically back to square one with this case. Uh, obviously, you have a lot more ammunition, a lot more information based on previous cases. Uh, but where, where, what's the road ahead look like for you right now? I mean, are you representing yourself? You know, I, I am. Yeah, yeah, and I'm actually it's it's somewhat liberating to be honest with you. No doubt. <laughs> no, 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 no. I can only imagine, especially because you've had many years now to really digest all the information and and probably become a lot more comfortable with representing yourself uh, versus just being sort of thrown into the lion's den day one. You know. Um, That's right. So 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 let's um, let's fast forward because uh, I've been watching a lot of your Facebook lives that you've been doing. You just recently covered a. I don't want to say it's a similar case, but it 
is similar in many respects. Uh, of um, so a new case that just wrapped up, I think, a few days ago. So perhaps you can, you know, sort of give us the the rundown of what happened there. Absolutely, and and you know, when I walked into it, I I, I saw some similarities in the case. Um, and when I got into the courtroom and saw what was taking place, I saw that it was much more similar than huh. I had initially in, anticipated. And so what we've got here, I, I came. I became aware of the case actually while I was going through my own trial in 2016. See, we were the first case of its kind in Canada where they're looking to set this new precedent, broadening the scope of the charges of failing to provide the necessaries of life to loving and attentive parents. Whereas prior to us, those charges had always been reserved for parents that were clearly negligent, you know, parents that would just you know, lock up their child in the basement and, and throw down some bread and some stuff, the right. time, that, that type of stuff. So just absolute cruelty. And so, um, in fact, the judge made, made it known at one point, so this is a really peculiar case. All the evidence that's before the courts is that the Staffans are loving, attentive, caring parents. And, you know, that's, that's really peculiar because that's not where these charges are normally applied. And yeah. so, and my lawyer's like, yeah, yeah, that's the point here. And so we had no case law to go off of in regard to similar cases when we were going through our own trial. And so I learned of this other case that was taking place that out of the same hospital, uh, the charges uh, or the, uh, the police activity was incited and all this type of stuff. There was, some, there was a lot of parallels, um, but these parents have been charged with criminal negligence resulting in death, which is a far more severe charge, up to 25 years in jail, Wow! and then failing to provide the necessaries of life. And so I decided, when I saw what the media was already doing with their case, uh, talking about it being a starvation case, CBC uh, headlined twice that uh, the child had starved. And when I saw that, and I knew that that wasn't at all, um, from what I'd been told, that wasn't at all the case, I thought, you know what, <clears throat> the media is going to do the exact same thing to these parents as they've done to us. They're already showing their colors on it. There's an agenda here. Yeah, the same and, smear and, campaign. <laughs> yep. And, and, and what, it, you know, these appear to be loving, caring parents and yet they're applying the same principles or the same, the same charges and stuff like that to, to them as they are to us, but even worse. And so I decided to go and cover it. And what, I've, what I discovered um, and what we've got here, because they were found guilty, which is really peculiar, and I'm not sure how exactly we got to that point. In fact, a lot of the people that were there are, 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 are dumbfounded. But um, uh, what we've got here is perhaps the most precedent-setting case in the history of Canada to ensure medical system compliance and to scare people away from even wanting to use natural medicine. And huh. the vaccine topic was, was broached in, this, in this, um, this court case as well. It appeared to be almost a complete replay of our court case. So, so just before we launch into that, what actually happened, you know, what, what really happened with, with the case? I mean, obviously we have a child that, that, you know, that died obviously, yeah. but how did we get there? How, what, what, what are the sort of details of that? Okay. So the official listed causation of death that came out almost 10 months after the passing of little John Wyatt Clark, he's a 14 month old uh, boy. Uh, the official causation of death that they listed was an overwhelming staph infection complicated by malnutrition. So it was that complicated by malnutrition that, that, uh, that the C CBC took and said starvation, starvation, right? Mm. Now, uh, now, but they knew better because there was a press conference where they, they made it clear that no, it wasn't starvation, but CBC still took it uh, to that, that nth degree there 
and, and began lying about it um, to the public so that uh, these parents were seen as, you know, they were demonized right off the bat. So what actually happened, though, is, is, is a whole other story. And it's interesting. Um, and it gives, it gives an understanding as to why it took over nine months to come up with that death summary uh, of that convoluted, uh, twisted causation of death. So you've got little John Wyatt Clark. He's 14 months old. And um, a few days previous to November 28th, because he comes into the hospital November 28th, 2013. A few days prior to that, he, he, he didn't stop eating, but he, um, he lost interest in eating. And so at that point, he's still breastfeeding and eating some solids. And so they, they replace uh, some of the, the, uh, um, uh, the fluids that he would have been getting through breast milk with coconut water to make sure that he's hydrated. And so they used about 16 to 20 ounces over those, those couple days to ensure that he was getting enough fluids. Now, what becomes concerning to the parents or appears to become concerning um, or out of the norm is that he uh, um, begins to develop a black spot on one of his toes. And so they, they do a search online in the evening of November 27th at about 6.21 p.m. Um, and uh, they do a search for, for gangrene, you know, wondering if that's what it is. And, um, and so that search takes place, and, but, you know, they don't take him to the hospital or anything like that. Uh, it doesn't appear that they're, they're overly concerned. It's not until the next day that, um, and, and we don't know what, what, what went through their minds because they didn't actually take the stand. So we don't know whether, you know, they may have thought it was a blood blister or, or what, but there was something that, that uh, made, them make, made them look that up. So the next day, this is what did come out in court, is that he's cold and he starts to get cold and clammy. And um, so they give him a bath and they realize that um, the, the black on his toe is beginning to spread. And it's now over two toes on, on his left foot and one toe on his right foot. Oh, wow. And, and they're thinking, oh, my, what the heck? So they take him into the hospital and they get him to the Foothills Hospital. Now, here, here's where some of the parallels uh, run is, you know, the history is he hadn't been vaccinated. And he had, just to be clear, he, yes? He had not. He had not, okay. He had not been vaccinated and he, it was a home birth. And, you know, the mom who used to be a school teacher was, you know, homeschooling because they had two other children, a seven-year-old and a, and a three-year-old uh, son as well. And, um, and, you know, they're, they're, they're pretty religious people and they're vegans. And so, you know, they're living an alternative lifestyle, but they're, they're very health conscious people from all the evidence that came before the courts, which we can get to. Um, this is what they found during the police raid that took place on their house. Um, but anyways, so he gets into the Foothills Hospital and the, the triage nurse identifies that he's alert and he's crying. So neurologically, he appears to be fine, um, but he is cold. And she identifies that there appears to be an issue with his circulation, which would identify why he's starting to get some blackening on his toes and so the doctor uh, comes and actually checks for a hair tourniquet to see if there was a hair wrapped around um, his toes or his foot that was causing the the blackening of the toes of the necrosis hmm. because it, it appeared to be a circulatory issue solely not an infectious issue because if it was if it was due to infection it would have been presenting with a putrid odor and it wasn't so by all means, it appeared to be a circulatory issue, not just based on the lack of the, the odor, but also on the, um, uh, the, the way that the, his whole foot presented, not just his toes. 
Mm-hmm. And so they're checking for this. And what they tried to do is they tried to get um, an IV line into them and that didn't work. So they attempted to get an interosseous line in where, where they drill right into the bone and then pump fluids in that way. And they, they misplaced it and it blew out after they, they started to put fluids in. And so what they did is they, they transported him across the way to Alberta Children's Hospital, which was a three-minute ambulance ride. He gets into the trauma bay in the Alberta Children's Hospital at 3.51 p.m. on November 28th. And at 4.05 p.m., they began to, actually, before we get there, at 4 o'clock, they take the first blood culture to see if there's any infectious agents or anything like that, as well as to test his blood to see how he is for for different nutrients and whatnot. All of his nutrient levels showed fine. Um, you know, the, that sample of blood didn't culture anything after five days. So at 4.05, though, they get an interosseous line into him to start putting um, some fluids into him because what they recognized is that he had hyponatremia, which is uh, low sodium level in the blood. He, had, he was registering at 108 millimoles per liter. Oh, wow, that's super low. Yeah, it is, yeah, it is, and because normal is one thirty-five to one forty-five. Right now, if it happened rapidly, he would be presenting with different, like, or severe neurological issues. So, let's say that I'm an ultra marathon runner. I go and I run, you know, um, you know, for a day type thing, and I yeah. and I, I I don't hydrate properly, and my sodium levels drop substantially to that point within a day or two, or within that day, I'm, my brain hasn't had the ability to adjust. And so I'm going to be probably delirious. I'm probably, I, I may even be having seizures. I'm going to be having all sorts of issues because yeah, my, yeah like not brain, brain and nervous system issues. Um, Cause obviously sodium and potassium, I mean, are, you know, they have to be in balance there. So yeah, that, that's, that's right. Yeah. And so, so the brain adjusts though, if it happens over a few days, the brain will actually start to swell a little bit. Uh, you end up with more intracellular fluid uh, within each cell. And, but your brain is adjusting appropriately so that you don't die. Because if that happened like immediately, you would die if your brain didn't have the ability to adjust. So, he, he, so this explains so why he has the hypothermia. Why he's cold and clammy? Because he comes in and he's at about 30 degrees Celsius is what he's presenting. So he's hypothermic. He's about six and a half degrees colder than he should be based on the, the, the situation at hand. And, but hypothermia is a symptom of hyponatremia. So it is having some kind of impact on him. But when he presents, the first doctor that, that gets to him in the trauma bay says that he's alert, he's crying um, in response to pain, uh, he's interacting with his surroundings, and then a nurse does a Glasgow coma scale rating on him, and he rates 15 out of 15, showing that there's no concerns with his neurological function. So it appeared to be, by all indications, chronic hyponatremia that had uh, developed over a few days. So the brains had the ability to adjust. So when you go to correct it, you need to correct it slow, which the, the Canadian uh, Medical Association's journal from 2014, uh, May 2014, publishes an article on it um, talking about managing hyponatremia. And they indicate that with chronic hyponatremia, you do not raise the sodium levels by more than 0.5 millimoles per liter per hour. Otherwise, you will oh, create wow. neurological well, issues. A, I mean, and, and if you're, if you're, what was it, 108? That, that- yeah. Yeah, so I mean, one hundred eight to get up to one one thirty five. It's gonna be a few day uh, that's process. Many hours. That's many, it's, many yeah, hours. Yeah, yeah, it's gonna be a few days. It's, it's gonna. Yeah. It should be. It should be three or four days of, over that period, right? Yeah. So to allow the brain once again to adjust, just like it adjusted over a few days previous. Huh. And so what they do is they get this interosseous line into him at four o five p.m. 
They give them a bolus of 200 milliliters of standard saline fluid, which is 0.9% concentration, but 200 milliliters. Now, do a little bit of math here. He's only got about 700 milliliters of blood in him based on his size being about nine kilograms, right? And so you just pumped in an additional 200 milliliters, which is Whoa. far over 20% of his total fluid um, like fluids within the body. Yeah. And that in itself is, is dangerous. So at, at 405, they pumped 200 mils. And then at, at 407, the doctor pumps another 400 milliliters Whoa. of saline fluid into him, but she doesn't chart it. She, she notes it oh, and she admits to it in court, but she doesn't chart it. And that in itself was a death sentence because Whoa. now they've just about doubled his fluid levels in his body, which would have killed any normal person yeah, I mean, right it's, there. It's, it's like, it's like if, you drink, if you drink too much water fast enough, you'll, you will die. That's right. Just straight water. Yes. You know? So yeah, go figure. You know, this is like a saline solution. So directly into there. the blood. That's just, that's just so crazy to hear. Um, and, and, but they don't stop there. That's the thing. And so, so now they've done these two boluses. And so at 417, they get a blood gas rating. And it shows that they've just taken them from 108 millimoles per liter of saline in his blood up to 115. So they've just increased it seven millimoles per liter in 12 minutes. Now you run the math, that's 70 times too fast above and beyond what the safe recommended level is. And so what that does is it causes osmotic demyelination syndrome where you end up with the, the intracellular fluid in, 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 the, in the, the brain cells just rushing out to try to compensate or to correct the, um, the concentration differences. So you have this rapid shrinkage taking place and you end up with the, uh, the myelin sheath around the neurons yeah. uh, being damaged or destroyed. And if it gets bad enough, you actually end up with axonal severing and it induces the apoptotic cycle, which is the, the programmed cell die-off. So you have this rapid shrinkage and die-off of cells, mainly in the pons area of the brainstem. And that controls all of your vitals, your heart rate, your breathing rate, you know, your respiratory rate, um, your blood pressure. It controls all of that. Basically, and all, of this, all of the subconscious, you know, basic survival uh, you know, mechanisms, if you will, in your body. Yes. And further to that, you, you know, if you, if you end up damaging the brainstem, it doesn't matter what's going on with the rest of your brain because all the flow of information goes through the brainstem into the body. And so it, you have this severe damage that takes place to the brainstem here. And so what happens is at 417, they get this blood gas rating that, that should have raised some serious flags that even if they were trying to correct acute hyponatremia, like what an ultra marathon runner, they still were going at five to six times too fast above and beyond the safe rate for that. So either way you looked at it, they increased his sodium level um, far, far, far too fast. Well, and also, and also let, 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 let's not forget that we're talking about a tiny child. I mean, it's, it's a 14-month-old it's, you know, kid. Uh, it's, That's right. Yeah. So, I mean. Yeah. So, yeah. the amount of fluids they gave him would have killed him, and the increased rate uh, of the saline would have killed him. Any normal human being would not have survived what they did. So at 417, they get that blood gas rating. What do they do? 418, they give them a bolus of sodium bicarbonate, which would have further elevated his sodium levels. At 420, oh, wow. so now 15 minutes into him beginning treatment, he ends up uh, developing a weakening cry because before he was crying normal. 
goes into a weakening cry and right after goes into a seizure. And at 424, they give him another bolus. And then at 426, they give him, they finally start to treat him uh, for this presumed infection that he had. So it wasn't until they basically killed him that they actually started to treat him for an infection. Now, I'm, I'm going to call it for what, for what I see it as. I'm going to call it for, for absolute cover-up that they now started to treat for this infection that they're going to write it off as. Uh, and that's what, what he died from was an overwhelming infection, so, not... Right. So, so, so ba- basically, we'll just forget about all of the saline injections and whatnot, and we'll just uh, completely shift gears onto this supposed infection, and that will be the narrative moving forward. Yes, that, that's what it appears to be, and we'll get further into that because they, you can actually see it taking place. So at 4.30, though, they give them another bolus, this time of concentrated saline solution. And so now they've just absolutely skyrocketed oh, his, uh, his saline levels. Um, and, 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 and anyway, so at about 6 o'clock, he goes into cardiac arrest. Uh, shortly thereafter, he has a, another seizure. And then the next day, oh, oh, and all of his vitals destabilized. They can't get his vitals back into control again after that point. And uh, the next morning, he ends up having another cardiac arrest, and they can't even maintain him on life support um, uh, or, or adequately maintain him. So parents come in and say their goodbyes. They pull him off life support. Parents leave in police custody. The two oh, other wow. children leave in child protective service custody, and they never got their children back now five years later. Um, fortunately they're in the care of a, another family member, but, um, but they, they, they still, you know, they don't have their, their other two children. So what comes out nine months later though, is this death certificate saying overwhelming staph infection complicated by malnutrition. So what they did, uh, they took a five o'clock blood rating. So remember they took the four o'clock that showed his nutrient levels as normal and yeah. that, uh, that there was no infectious agent, right? So he, he didn't come in with this overwhelming infection, which he didn't actually have the symptoms of either. He didn't have the inflammatory um, response. Uh, his abdomen was nice and soft. There was no edema. There was nothing indicative of an overwhelming infection. Um, and so I mean, it's, that's it's, what they, it seems like there was no symptoms of any type of infection whatsoever, not, let, let alone a severe infection. That's right. Now, and the second thing is, is the blackening of the toes. What they discovered is that there was a CT scan that took place that, that identified a thrombus. So the, okay. the, uh, the, uh, the uh, fibrous clot that would cause the condition of thrombosis, mm. they discovered a thrombus in the inferior vena cava, which would have, it was admitted by the, the medical examiner, that it would have actually, or it could have created the blackening in the toes. But what they never did is if you have one thrombus, it's quite likely that you probably have more. Absolutely. You have a condition causing it. They never examined his lower legs, the veins, to identify if there was any more um, thrombus uh, or thrombuses in the veins uh, to see if that's what caused this the major circulatory issue that uh, two different doctors identified and a nurse identified based on the presentation of this young boy it was not an infectious agent it was uh, thrombosis causing this phenomenon and he had hyponatremia and what Annie Savage identified is that it was likely a glandular issue that caused both of those, those issues because otherwise they're two separate issues altogether. But the hyponatremia would have um, accounted for his, uh, his, his lethargy or his listless, you know, not, not yeah. being interested in eating food as much, and yeah. the, the hypothermia. And then the thrombosis would have identified um, why he was getting necrosis of the toes. 
which began to spread rapidly when he got into the hospital. So yeah, there's no indication of an overwhelming infection. There's nothing that cultures in the four o'clock blood sample. But what they did is they took a five o'clock blood sample after being in the hospital setting for nearly two hours. And what did they find? One of the most prevalent bacteria uh, strains that you would find in a hospital that people contract there, Staphylococcus aureus. Right. right? So the, and that, that, that was actually acquired in the hospital. Quite likely. And it was even admitted by the medical examiner who did the autopsy report that, yeah, it could have just been contamination, right? Well, I mean, that, that and, is one of the places where people pick up these infections. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's well known, well established. You know, yes. you go to hospital and you're picking up C. diff, you're picking up these resistant staph infections and whatnot because you're in a place with a whole bunch of sick people. You know, so yes. it makes sense. Um, exactly. And then so what they did with that other five o'clock rating uh, blood, blood culture, the blood sample, is they took a look at some of the, the nutrient levels in there. Now, remember, he had just, by this point, they kept on pumping fluids into him. And within 32 minutes of him being in that hospital, so half an hour before that five o'clock rating was taken, um, they had already diluted his blood down to about 50% of what it once was, which in itself would have caused hypoxic injury and whatnot, because the delivery of oxygen would have been significantly reduced because now you, mm. you've got all this fluid mixed in with these red blood cells. So, um, so they take a look at that and it shows that some of his nutrient levels are low. Well, of course, you because just diluted, diluted it yeah. with saline fluid, right? By 50%. And so, wow. um, so that, that was one of the basis. But what, what the medical examiner did is three days after the fact is she took uh, to identify malnutrition. Because he was smaller than normal, but his parents are smaller than normal as well. There's a genetic component there. Now, with a malnourished child, you, you'd anticipate they'd be extremely skinny, right? He right, wasn't like, skinny. You know, gaunt, gaunt eyes, like, you know, sunken in cheeks, you know, big joints, et cetera, et cetera. Right. But so now he was, he was pretty short. He was, he was in his, I think, about the one percentile for his height. Okay. Um, so, you know, you take 100 children and he's going to be about the smallest, uh, if not the second smallest child. Uh, out of 100, 100 kids. But if you compare his height to weight ratio, he was in the 98th percentile for his weight. So he was for his height. Well yeah. Yeah. So if, yeah. So if you take 100 kids that are all that height, he's going to be, you know, there's only going to be one or two kids that are going to be actually heavier than him out of those 100 children. So um, that's what they find. And yet they're, they're trying to claim that he was malnourished, which, you know, it's completely backwards. He would have been skinny first, then it would have impaired the overall growth of the bones and everything. And so um, what comes out uh, in regard to that is how she verified that he was malnourished is she took blood after he'd been dead for three days and went and had it tested for four different nutrients. And what she found is that they couldn't get a zinc rating because the blood had been too degraded but yet she took the low vitamin A and the low vitamin D rating from that same blood that was extremely degraded and used that as her basis for being malnourished, even though uh, four days previous, when he's in the hospital and they take the first blood sample, his, his uh, vitamin mineral levels show up as normal. So rather than taking the blood that hadn't been diluted and that was still living um, and taking that as the authority on, you know, is he malnourished or not, they take him and they dilute the heck out of his blood and then he's dead for three days and they take a sample and they say, look, he's malnourished. And, and so the other thing is I didn't bring up is at this point, he's, he's, um, he has eczema and had been suffering with chronic eczema for, for his life. I mean, maybe that's wrong terminology suffering, but he had been um, having eczema and it flared up during bouts of teething. And so 
Um, at this point, he presents to the hospital with this eczema, and every doctor and nurse just said, oh, yeah, you know, it's eczema, right? No concern there, no, right. nothing to, to really look at there. So what, what the medical examiner did, though, is said, it, it was not eczema, it is der- or malnutrition dermatitis. It's a dermatitis that's caused because of the malnutrition that identified through this three-day-old blood. And, um, wow. And, uh, and so that's what, what, uh, what caused his eczema, and uh, that's what allowed for the infectious agent of, of Staphylococcus aureus to come in through his toes and go and become extreme septicemia, and he died from it from the shutdown of his organs. So, right. So it's, a, it's this huge theory. Crazy. I mean, it's it's just it's just crazy. Like what I, what I what I'm hearing and the way I see this is this is more a case of medical malpractice than it is uh, negligence. <laughs> um, yes. That, that that's that's just crystal clear from this. But how do we get now from? All of the stuff that we're looking at, I mean, this is now, all of this is obviously coming out in a courtroom, right? How do we get to a verdict where these, these poor folks are found guilty? And not just that, how does the vaccine picture now come into this whole situation? Uh-huh. So there was lots of prejudicial information that was being presented to the jury uh, throughout the entirety of the case. Oh, home birth, never been to a doctor. Uh, right. you know, vegans. Paint them in a certain, you know, in some kind of yeah. frame, right? You know, home yeah. not, yeah. okay. Yeah. Not, not vaccinated, not vaccinated. That, that's been, you know, hit over the head many, many times. And so I thought, well, you know, they're only going to use it for character assassination. Well, it was surprising to me when they brought in uh, the infectious disease expert, uh, the doctor, Dr. Jabi uh, from the Alberta Children's Hospital. And um, the crown actually went above and beyond just, you know, making mention that he wasn't vaccinated. He actually, you know, began to ask about, you know, the vaccine schedule, uh, and they went into detail there. And then um, he posed the question, the Crown Prosecutor, um, would, you know, little John not being vaccinated, would that uh, impair his ability to fight off all other infections? Oh, wow, that's a stretch. It's a huge stretch. But (laughs) here's the interesting thing is that in our court case, when uh, during the preliminary trial, when it was identified there was going to be a vaccine trial, the doctors were willing to, to, you know, close the gap on that major stretch and say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, uh, we've seen it uh, reduce the prevalence of all forms of homophilus influenza, even though it's only, uh, you know, solely dedicated for homophilus which, influenza which, type B. Which is flat wrong. I mean, it's flat wrong. Uh, you know, it, there's just to sort of sidebar here, but I think relevant to what we're talking about, there was a Danish study that came out of... Um, the malaria vaccine, right? So malaria vaccine, and, and, and I know this is a controversial topic, et cetera. Malaria is something that does kill a lot of people in Africa. And yes, we should be looking at measures to try and, and help that. So they developed a vaccine for malaria and shows that the malaria vaccine is really working. So there's a lot of children now who are not dying from vaccines. But this Danish study then showed that the likelihood or the prevalence of them getting other diseases actually increased fourfold. Yes, which, yeah, which, it's is, which is the opposite of what you're actually saying here. So while it protects yeah. against one, it sort of makes you a little bit more susceptible, I assume, because your immune system is weakened to some degree or unbalanced is perhaps a better word. And now these children are acquiring other diseases and subsequently dying from them. But you don't, you don't hear that in the media. You just hear the, 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 you know, the, the malaria vaccine is working great and off we go. So I'm really shocked to hear that 
doctors and experts would actually say that on the stand. And it's an absolute lie because when we, when we went and mounted a defense against uh, where they were going, uh, what, what we came out with uh, or what uh, Tatjana Obikanich, uh, a renowned immunologist, came out with is that actually it's the opposite where, yes, you've got the Haemophilus influenza B vaccine and the prevalence of, of Hib has gone down, but all of the other uh, versions of Haemophilus influenza have actually increased to the point where you still have the same prevalence of Haemophilus influenza infections. It's just you're more likely to have a non uh, Hib version or Haemophilus influenza B version comparatively to the other strains. And so um, the doctors were lying on stand against us. And so we, I expected that this uh, doctor uh, during this, this recent trial here was actually going to be, had been coached on it and was going to come up with a canned answer in favor of the crown. But it was actually to my surprise when he said, no, it would have had no impact. We need to remember that this is a staph infection and that there is no vaccine for it. And so the Crown just shut up about it. And we didn't hear another thing about vaccines until the closing submissions to the jury where he brought that out again as prejudicial information. So, so going back here, like that was just straight up, you know, character assassination. That's all. Like there was no, you know, no, no direct correlation between no vaccinations and dying from a staph infection. Exactly. Yep. Okay. And so, so we, we did have, so, you know, I've been, I've been running or, you know, just running over this, um, this scenario, trying to figure out how it is that it possibly came to a guilty verdict with all the information, and it was abundantly clear. Even if, even if the defense never brought in any witnesses themselves, the, all the Crown's uh, expert witnesses and stuff got completely dismantled because they had no scientific basis to, to make these claims, and they got called out on it and had to make all sorts of admissions to, well, yeah, it could have been contamination, and yeah, it may not have been malnourishment, and yeah, you know, it's not the best thing to test uh, three-day-old dead blood. Uh, that's not a reliable uh, test, but it's all we had. Um, so, you know, all these admissions are being made that are discrediting them, and so, and then Dr. Annie Savage, the former chief medical examiner of Alberta, came and testified to everything that I had mentioned there about the amount of uh, uh, saline increase would have killed them and the amount of fluids would have killed them, and so the jury hears this and they're getting it. And in order to find somebody um, guilty on criminal negligence resulting in death, you have to say that they were the ones that were solely responsible for the death. And so the mm. parents in this case, it became abundantly clear throughout the case that they weren't responsible. The child presented to the hospital in a stable condition that was treatable and 15 minutes into them going into intervention, the child goes into a major seizure and never really comes out of that, that state of, of condition. He's weakened, his vitals are off, he's having cardiac arrest, and, um, and he dies. And so, so it's I a, mean, is, is, is this just a, a question of the medical establishment, for lack of a better word, just completely backpedaling on this whole situation and covering their own ass? Uh, well, you know, if that, were, if that were the situation, you would see a lot of criminal proceedings taking place with right. all sorts of parents, because this is happening a lot more often than not. The, so the question has to be asked, why is it that uh, the two cases that come out of Alberta Children's Hospital in the last few years have parents that are non-vaccinating parents, mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, they, they are into natural health. The sort of common, common denominators, right? They, yeah, yeah they're, they're religious. Um, they live alternative lifestyles. Like it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. You can't tell me that we're the only two cases that the Alberta Children's Hospital is massively screwed up on, 
um, in the last few years and that they tried to backpedal and we both ended up in the crosshairs of the uh, uh, of criminal proceedings. It just doesn't make sense. It appears that there's a profiling taking place here. And I'm going to go so far as to say that there's a potential, there's the potential that there may be some intent here because when you take a look at the reckless behavior that took place in the Alberta Children's Hospital in the regard to the care of little John Wyatt Clark, any doctor would have known that you pump 600 milliliters of saline fluid into a child in, in just over two minutes, that you're going to kill them. Any yeah. doctor would have known that. So I, I can't wrap my head around how a doctor would be so incompetent. And further, she didn't chart the second bolus. And so it was there an intent why she didn't chart it, but yet she wrote it in her notes and admits to it later in, in these court proceedings. Something is just really, really off there. Um, and I think it has something to do with the, who the parents were and, uh, and what they stood for and that they fit, uh, fit the bill for uh, an agenda to move forward with criminal proceedings to, uh, to ensure medical system compliance. So, so, okay. And that, I mean, I mean, I think that that's a great segue into the final stretch here for us today, because, you know, one thing that you and I've chatted about off air, um, is, is the whole idea of precedent, right? You know, so th- this is a precedent setting case, if you will. Um, maybe you can unpack that a little bit. Like, what does that mean? Like in what way, in what way is this a precedent and in what way could this be potentially detrimental for the rest of us? Yes. So what, what the case does, it really establishes that the fact that the parents um, were looking into, you know, and they've got Google searches and stuff like that from when they did a raid on their house and, and uh, went to the computer, is that, uh, you know, they looked for natural care, you know, the day before, the day before. And so what they're, what they're making the claim of is, well, you, you delayed, right? You looked, you looked for natural cares, you, you knew that something was there. And, and the fact of the matter is that, you know, just about any parent, whether they're, they're naturally minded or not, they're going to they're gonna try to take things into their hands generally, unless you're a neurotic parent. You're going to try taking things into your own hands if, if there isn't something of severity yet. And then it, when it appears that, oh, uh, no, this is beyond us. There's something going on here. Um, we need to take the child in. And so what they're, what they're looking to do with this or what they have done with this is they have established the precedent that, look, if you, if you choose natural or if you, if you choose to delay in any way, shape, or form, um, we are going to hold you criminally liable, even if the child came in in a condition that was treatable and the medical or the, and the, the hospital killed them, you're going to be held liable for it. And that's the message that they're setting here. Wow. And so, um, yeah, so it, it's, it's got a lot of people up in arms, a lot of people scared. And that's an unfortunate thing. Uh, the last thing I want to ever do is, is, is convey a message that scares anybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just need to take a bold, courageous stand and say, no, we're not having any of this. We're not having you erode our parental rights. We have the choice as to whether or not we take our child to a natural path or a homeopath or, or whatnot, um, you know, using our discretion. It's our, our child. Um, you know, we're the ones that, that know best for them. We, we love them or we're the ones that, that have the greatest interest in, in their well-being. And so, you know, we, we need to have that, that ability to do that. Now, obviously, within reason. Of if, course, yeah. I'm, well, I'm not going to, you know, my child falls off my, you know, a roof or something or, or a playground and, and you know, they snap their leg and it's sticking. No, I'm not going to go and take them to a homeopath and say, what do you got to, to treat this, of, right? Of course. <laughs> I've I've always said that I'm like you know there's I, I believe that there's a time and a place for all forms of care and 
hopefully one day we will get to a happy place where we can all coexist because you know if you get hit by a bus don't come and see me uh this exactly. is not do for you at all um <laughs> that's where the er is a great place to be right but that's right i think the thing that's that troubles me perhaps the most is we're starting to see and i'm going to see if i can frame this correctly for us we're, what this says to me is a we have state intervention that seems to be overstepping a lot of bounds right overstepping a lot of boundaries obviously encroaching on freedom of choice is is one but the problem that i have to double down on that is that we're now also pushing this medical only you know drug only agenda yes and i think put all of that together that is very very concerning for me because what it basically means as you said you know if I choose not to vaccinate, if I choose to give my kid vitamin C versus Tylenol, if anything went wrong at any point in time, we could just simply dial the clock way back when and say, well, that's what you chose five years ago and look where you're at now, so you're liable. And that's crazy. Exactly. That, that, that's crazy to me. So, you know, and, and it's a slippery slope because where does it end? Well, exactly. I want to give you another example of, of exactly where I see this going. And th- this is where, you know, I spend a lot more of my time um, is in the psychiatric realm. And so imagine you've got a parent and the, you know, nine-year-old child is exhibiting some, some form of, you know, uh, mania, uh, you know, they're, they're bouncing off the walls, maybe they're raging, that type of thing. And, um, and, you know, but it's like, okay, well, I don't want to go, you know, give them, you know, these medications. I'm going to try use, you know, I'm going to go to the health food store. Maybe they're going to give me some GABA or, you know, some, something else, St. John's War, something to, yeah. to relax. Right. And so this goes on maybe for a few months or maybe a year or whatever. Now imagine if all of a sudden, um, you know, the parents come home one day and to their horror, the child, uh, you know, had a, had a horrific week at, at school or something, was getting bullied and ends up hanging themselves. Okay. Now I'm, I'm, I'm being extreme here, but I'm, this is exactly where this is going. And so there's an investigation into it and um, the authorities are like, well, okay, you know, how, you know, what was going on with him? Like, what, what happened the week before? Oh, well, he's being bullied. How long has he been showing, you know, these types of symptoms? Like, has he always been a little bit off? And, and say the parents are like, you know, they're, they're in a vulnerable state. And they're just like, yeah, you know, like, you know, last year we went and we went to the health food store and we grabbed this or this for him and, uh, to try to help him. Boom. Yeah. You've, got, you've got criminality right there based on this precedent where now they can be charged and brought in and, and uh, and shown to be criminally negligent for not giving him proper psychiatric care uh, and, and going and get onto these medications um, through, you know, uh, you know what, what is deemed to be approved by the state to, to meet the yeah. criminal code approved standard of care is how they worded it in my case. And so even though these medications can increase and likely do, well, they many times do increase, especially with adolescents, the, the risk of suicide by well over two times. And in fact, many times it's up to eight times. Well, and, and, uh, this, and, I mean, this is actually on the insert of the drugs. That's right. The black box warnings that they had to put, I believe it was 2005 after the major FDA hearing took place with all of these children or the parents of all these children who had committed suicide shortly after getting on these medications. But, but we see where this is going is that this yeah. is going, this has now the precedent is set it can be applied to that exact model where we could see criminal charges coming out next month using that as a basis based off the precedent that was just set with the Clark case. That's where we're going here. That's crazy. So, so I mean, I, I, think, I think, you know, you've done a great job at laying this all out for us, uh, for our listeners as well. But 
you know, I just try and end on a positive note here. I mean, what, what do you think needs to be done? Like, how do we, how do we fight this? Uh, how can people help you? Um, what's, what's going on in terms of the pushback here? Yeah, so in, in, in the immediate dealing with this particular situation at hand, um, not understanding why the, the jury found them guilty and, and looking, I, I got to sit there and analyze them and there was something off with them, uh, you know, when they came back and there was something weird. Um, and I, I laid that out in my, my previous video. But uh, I also got to analyze the judge and the judge appeared to be visibly appalled at the decision. Now, he needs mm-hmm. to kind of flow through with it unless there's enough public pressure that says this is not in the public interest. So um, today I'm going to be coming out with a short video um, uh, uh, on, online there that talks about uh, a letter writing campaign. And that letter writing campaign can go for, for quite some time here um, to the judge uh, laying out the concerns about this conviction and the precedent that it sets and the erosion of parental rights and the support for the clerks and all that type of stuff. So I'm going to be coming out with a video um, laying that out and where these letters can be sent so that hopefully he can overturn the conviction um, and if not, at least apply a very, very reasonable sentence or even a suspended sentence yeah. to, the, to them, um, being that the jury actually acted outside of, uh, out of his um, jury instruction wherein they, they didn't take the evidence into proper account. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so that's the first thing. The second thing is, is that there's going to be more trials like this coming up in Canada and we need to be made aware of it. And, and when I say we, you know, the people that are, that are involved in the activism here, um, so that we can adequately cover this so that they don't go slipping under the radar. Because had I not known about this court case, the only, the only people that would have had any word on it was the mainstream media, which when you take a look at what, what they're reporting compared to what I've, what I laid out during this interview, yeah. it's a night and day difference. And they actually oh, really? hail the doctors as heroes in this situation when in fact it was solely due to the, the, uh, the doctor's intervention um, in such a reckless way that he ended up dying rapidly upon uh, r- arriving at the hospital. So um, that's the other thing is we got to keep a watchful eye. This is an agenda and it's going to be rapidly progressing here in Canada. We need to be made aware of it and we need to take a firm stand against it um, in, in, in exposing the corruption behind it, the cover-up, um, as well as uh, um, involving ourselves in these different letter-writing campaigns or, or it'll eventually come to the point as well uh, of actual physical rallies and protests to what's going on. And so people Agreed. need to just be willing to take that stand. And if they don't today, um, their children and their grandchildren are going to be growing up in a situation where it's far too late to take a stand then. Yeah. And I mean, this is already happening. Uh, we know, and I think we might've dived into this on our last podcast together, uh, the whole idea of vaccine schools, you know, for parents who are not vaccinating and, you know, all, all of that, the public pressure. And of course now we have social media pressure that's coming down on folks who choose not to, but, you know, I, I guess just to wrap us up today, David, um, you know, I just once again, want to thank you for your, you know, your, your, your courage and your bravery and all of this and for, going to such great lengths to report these stories. I know that this is obviously something that's super close to your heart. You know, you, you were the first to experience this. Um, you know, so again, you know, just thank you for all that you do. And, and I really hope that sincerely here, I hope that this interview and this podcast can really serve as a, 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 a digital asset, if you will, that hopefully, you know, those people who are listening to this right now, Share this with people, 
you know, if you can use this, however you can use this interview to your best, um, you know, leverage it however you can, David. And, you know, I think that this interview for me has really been an eye opener in many senses um, where uh, it's important for us to spend time to discuss these things. You know, this is not a 300 word article or a five minute soundbite. Like this is, you know, we're going on almost an hour and a half here. And it takes that amount of time, if not more, to really wrap your head around what the heck is going on. Yeah. Um, so, you know, once again, just thank you for coming on the show. For those of you listening out there, um, you should definitely, especially if, if you're living in Canada, but even if you're living in the US, no matter where you are, this stuff is going on in the background and a lot of people are just not aware that it's happening. So please, please, please uh, share this with family, with friends, with parents, uh, and we will definitely be sharing uh, some of your links, David. So as soon as you have that video up, uh, ch check out the show notes, um, folks. And I would encourage you to follow David online. Um, he's done a, you've done a great job at reporting on this. You actually went to the courthouse in Calgary, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I, I was there every day uh, throughout the entirety of the trial, except for the, the jury instruction from the judge, which I had somebody else sit in because I was dealing with my own court matters that, that morning. And right. so, yes, I, I got to see the entirety of it other than the judge instruction. Yeah. So, and if we're, again, letter writing campaigns, all that stuff, check out the show notes. Uh, we'll have some stuff there for you. Uh, David, thanks again for coming on the show. And um, for Thank those you. folks listening, uh, thanks for tuning in. And uh, please share, subscribe, review, do whatever you can to help get the word out and help me to have awesome guests like David come on the show. So thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time. Thank you, Beth.